me invite you to turn to Job chapter 4 this morning. We will be looking at chapters 15 to 21, but I want to start in Job chapter 4. Beginning there in chapter 4, Job's three friends begin to talk to him, to talk to Job about God, about his situation, and about why it has all come about, and about how he can be restored. And so what we have beginning in chapter 4 is these three cycles of speeches that Eliphaz speaks, then Job, then Bildad speaks, then Job responds, and then Zophar speaks, and then Job. And so that happens three times. Uh, Besides the last time, all three men speak and Job responds to all three men. On the last cycle, we'll see next week that Zophar does not respond. Job silences them. And um, what I plan to do today in chapters 15 through 21 is to show you some of the reasoning that each of these three men have with Job's circumstances, but I hope you'll recognize that the the first set of speeches that we looked at last week in chapters 4 through 14 really contain a lot of the same things that we're going to look at today. And so I don't want to uh, necessarily rehash all the same things over and over again. And so I want to show you the point of what 15 through 21 is and then give you application that will um, help us uh, think rightly about uh, suffering and the circumstances that are surrounding them and, and, and also how we ought to respond to people who are suffering. What we'll see today in these seven chapters is that to his friends, Job is suffering because of his guilt, because of his sin, but Job still maintains his innocence. We see this throughout the book of Job, that Job maintains his innocence. So let's look at chapter 4 verses 3 and 4, because I want to show you the first person who we'll see in these speeches today, and that is Eliphaz. I want to show you what he said to Job the very first time that he spoke to him, and this is in uh, chapter 4, verse 3. Behold, you, Job, have admonished many, and you have strengthened weak hands. Your words have helped the tottering to stand, and you have strengthened feeble knees. Now turn over to chapter 15, because now we see in the second opportunity that Eliphaz has to speak, he's not so discreet. He commends Job in chapter 4, says, you you have actually been a man of wisdom, and that's why these things are so hard for me to say to you, Job. Don't you recognize that this suffering is for a reason? Chapter 15, verse 4, Eliphaz makes a strong accusation against Job. Indeed, you do do away with reverence and hinder meditation before God. For your guilt teaches your mouth and you choose the language of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you and not I and your own lip, lips testify against you. Job, you are in the wrong, Eliphaz is saying. And he goes on to reason with Job. Look at verse 14. What is man that he should be pure? Or he who is born of woman, that he should be righteous? Remember, Job had, been, Job had been claiming that he was innocent. That he didn't deserve this suffering that he was receiving. That if you put people in categories and, and put the suffering and the, the prosperity that goes along with each person, then, then Job would not receive this much suffering for what he had done. 
So Job is maintaining his innocence, but notice in verse 15 what Eliphaz says, Behold, he puts no trust in his holy ones, that is God, puts no trust in his angels, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is detestable and corrupt, man who drinks iniquity like water. Job, if God doesn't even trust his own heavenly servants, verse 15, then why would He trust you to proclaim your innocence? So if if an angel were to come having an offense against God, would God just take them at their word? Is the point that Eliphaz is making and and he's making a legitimate one. That it it would speak to God's character for Him to ignore uh, to ignore his own knowledge of what had happened. And so he's saying to Job, Job, how can you maintain your innocence? Doesn't, don't you think God knows what you have done? And that's why all this suffering has come. And so he continues in the second part of chapter, 17, or chapter 15, and he tells what he sees from his own observation. Look at verse 20. He gives the reason for why Job is suffering in his mind, in Eliphaz's mind. The wicked man writhes in pain all his days, and numbered are the years stored up for the ruthless. Look at verse 25. Because he has stretched out his hand against God and conducts himself arrogantly against the Almighty. Verse 24 had said, Distress and anguish terrify him. That is, all these things that are happening to a wicked person, they happen for a reason. That person, verse 25, has stretched out his hand against God and has offended God in some way. Eliphaz was claiming that Job was suffering because he was wicked. Wickedness results in suffering, Eliphaz is saying. So if you are suffering, the easy, the easy conclusion is that you are wicked or you have been wicked. So, so don't be presumptuous, Job, as if you know the mind of God. Look at verse 8. Do you hear the secret counsel of God and limit wisdom to yourself? Job, do you think you can claim that you know the mind of God? What is Eliphaz saying in, this, in essence? You can't know His mind. God is, God's ways are unsearchable. And yet, for the rest of the chapter, Eliphaz claims that he knows what God is thinking, right? You can't know it, but I can. And so without explicitly condemning Job, Eliphaz portrays for him what a wicked man looks like in the second part of the, of the chapter. He says this is what a wicked man does. This is what his result is, his suffering that comes upon him. And so, hint, hint, Job, your suffering then you must be wicked. The reason you have an empty life is because you have been wicked. So as long as we can pin other people as wicked, then we don't have to wrestle with the mystery of the wicked who prosper. We don't have to think about innocent suffering. As long as we can... Call them wicked. Say, well, if you're suffering, then you have to be wicked. I don't have to think about the fact that the wicked could possibly prosper. Why would God ever allow that? Why would God allow the innocent to suffer? So we often 
wrongly condemn people for their suffering when we should not. You see, it's far easier to lower our view of God so He fits in a nice little box. We can take Him out and, and say, well, this is, these are the parameters around God. These, this is how God fits. It's much easier to do that than to raise our view of what the Scriptures talk about Him, that He is behind... Okay, and, and listen to this carefully. He is behind both good and evil. Now, He's behind good in a different way than He's behind evil. That He is the source of all good. He stands behind evil in the sense that He is sovereign over it. No evil happens apart from God's plan, apart from God's control. Now, for us to think how God has explained Himself with regard to good and evil is much harder to do than simply to say, the wicked suffer, the innocent prosper. But that doesn't work. We live in a real world. We see that the innocent do suffer. We see that the wicked do prosper. So something must be wrong in our thinking. For Aliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they simply just put God in a box. And so that means that we need to think hard and carefully about how God has revealed Himself with regard to sin and suffering. And at some point, we have to leave some of these things to mystery. That God's ways are unsearchable. Now, that doesn't mean we simply just, okay, we set the Bible aside and, I'm sorry, we can't understand the ways of God. No, we understand as much as He has revealed to us And we do our best to understand Him, but then at some point we recognize, hey, I'm finite. I don't have the mind of God. If we pulled all of our minds together, all the Christians in the world, we still wouldn't meet. We wouldn't even come close to the mind of God, would we? The point is, there is a great mystery in what is going on in the world right now. So we can't just pin pin a, a, a person who's suffering into a corner and say you must be wicked. We can't put God in a box like we would like to. Say, you know, we, I just need to show you some of my theology. I'll, I'll explain all these things to you. In some cases, we simply cannot. Job's response is in chapter 16 and 17 to Eliphaz. And of course, he is not comforted. Remember, their original purpose was to do what? It was to come to him and sympathize with him and comfort him. And they did that for seven days by not saying anything. But then they made the mistake of opening their mouths and trying to know, tried to show that they knew what the answers were to all of life's problems. Job says in chapter 16, verse 4, I too could speak like you if I were in your place. I would compose words against you and shake my head at you. I would strengthen you with my mouth and the solace of my lips could lessen your pain. If I were in your shoes, I would comfort you. I wouldn't do what you're doing to me. So in verses 7 and 8, he turns to God and then he explains his sorrow, the brokenness that he has before God in verses 9 through 17. Look at verse 12. I was at ease, but He, God, shattered me. And He has grasped me by the neck and shaken me to pieces. He has also set me up as His target. His arrows surround me without mercy. He splits my kidneys open. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks through me with breach after breach. He runs at me like a warrior. Job feels hemmed in because of the things that are going on in his life. He's not 
accusing God here. He's just saying that he feels as if God is his, his, is his enemy. feels as if, if he is suffering because of, of um, God's control. And yet his hope is in God. Verses 18 and 18 through 21. O earth, do not cover my blood and let there be no resting place for my cry. Even now behold my witnesses in heaven and my advocate is on high. My friends are my scoffers. My eye weeps to God. Oh, that a man might plead with God as a man with his neighbor. For when a few years are past, I shall go the way of no return. Job says, my advocate is on high. My, my hope is in heaven or, or with God at least. He may not have had a, a clear concept of heaven at this time. He realizes that he probably doesn't have much longer to live. But in someday, the life to come, he would be vindicated, that he would be justified for what he had done. And so Job's problem in chapter 17 is that he struggles with this mystery that there is of righteous suffering. In his mind, he can't put his arms around it. He can't grasp it. Look at verse 15. Where now is my hope and who regards my hope of chapter 17? Excuse me, chapter 17, verse 15. Where now is my hope and who regards my hope? Will it go down with me to Sheol? Shall we together go down into the dust? Is there any hope in this life? Job saying, ultimately I will be vindicated, chapter 16, verses 18 to 22, but, but I recognize that in this life there may be no more hope for my physical condition. Now let's look at Bildad's speech in chapter 18. Bildad now takes over the conversation and he says, Job, you need to notice the the plight of the wicked. Notice where they are. Verse 5. Indeed, the light of the wicked goes out and the flame of his fire gives no light. Figuring this out yet, Job? The light of the wicked goes out do you realize why your light has gone out? Okay, all the suffering's taking place. All your family's been taken away. Your possessions, your health. That happens to the wicked, Job. Your suffering is a result of, of the trap of sin that you have fallen into. That's what he says in verses 7-10. through 10. My eye has also grown dim because of grief. And all my members, excuse me, I should be in chapter 18. Chapter 18, verse 7. His vigorous stride is shortened and his own scheme brings him down. That is a wicked person. For he is thrown into the net by his own feet and he steps on the webbing. A snare seizes him by the heel and the trap snaps shut on him. A noose for him is hidden in the ground and the trap for him on the path. All around terrors frighten him and harry him at every step. Job, you've fallen into the trap of sin. Just admit it. Notice the destruction of the wicked in verses 16 through 20. His roots are dried below and his branches cut off above. Memory of him perishes from the earth and he has no name abroad. He is driven from light into darkness and chased from the inhabited world. He has no offspring or posterity among his people nor any survivor where he sojourned. Those in the west are appalled at his fate and those in the east are seized with horror. And Bildad's final conclusion is found in verse 21. Surely such are the dwellings of the wicked, and this is the place of him who does not know God. 
The unrighteous Job do not know God. Those who suffer have been shown to be unrighteous, and the unrighteous do not know God. Implication, without saying it directly to Job, you don't know God. You don't recognize that God punishes suffering. You're trying to claim that you're innocent, but how can you be if you're suffering? Wicked people suffer, not good people. Not godly people. So you can imagine if you were in Job's shoes that you would be insulted like he is in chapter 19. Look what he says in verse 2. How long will you torment me and crush me with words? Look at verse 21. Pity me. Pity me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. I mean, he's been hedged in by this wall that's around him and the least that you guys could do is simply have mercy on me. Yet all you've done is condemn me. Although Job cries out for help, his family and friends are no help. His wife tells him to curse God and die. His friends say it's a result of his own wickedness. And Job says, I, I am thankful to be alive. I, it's, it's only by the grace of God that I am alive. Verse 20 of chapter 19. My bone clings to my skin and my flesh and I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. This is where that phrase that we often use comes from. The skin of my teeth. Just barely escaped alive. Look at verse 22. Why do you persecute me as God does and are not satisfied with my flesh? If I'm suffering for my sin, as you say, then why aren't you satisfied? I'm suffering. Why do you have to keep pouring on? Why don't you just leave me alone? You keep piling on, making it worse and worse. If I am suffering for my sin, then leave me alone. Job's confidence was not in what they had to say. Job was not ready to confess sin that he hadn't committed. Instead, his confidence is in his Redeemer. Chapter 19, verses 23-29. through 29. Verse 23, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book that with an iron stylus and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. Job wishes that what he's about to say was written down. That his words, his thoughts were written down in stone. And in a sense, since we're reading it today, we have it written down in stone. It's been preserved. So that his wisdom would be... He wants it written down so that his wisdom would be carried on beyond his death and cause others to consider their own potential judgment. Look at verse 28. If you say, how shall we persecute persecute him and what pretext for a case against him can we find then be afraid in other words you be afraid of the sword for yourselves for wrath brings the punishment of the sword so that you may know there is judgment Job saying be careful now how you're judging me because I want my words to be written down so that after I die you can look back on them and, and think about them for yourselves. So that you are not judged in the very way that you're claiming I am being judged. Because you are giving false testimony against me. 
Well, Zophar hears all this from Job, and he cannot be silent. He has to speak, and so he does so in chapter 20. And he claims that the wicked get what they deserve. Verse 2, Therefore my disquieting thoughts make me respond, even because of my inward agitation. I listened to the reproof which insults me, and the spirit of my understanding makes me answer. Do you know this from of old, from the establishment of man on earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless momentary? Do you know this, Job? I've been listening, and you're not speaking as God speaks, from what I can understand. The wicked suffer, Job. Whatever height the wicked reach does not change the fate of them. Verses 6 and 7. The wicked get vengeance from God because they've mistreated people. They've done it in order to get rich. So Zophar now connects the dots even further. See, for the first two friends, they saw that Job's suffering was connected to some sort of evil that he had done. But now Zophar connects the dots a little further. He says, the reason that you're suffering is because you've done something. And I'm telling you this, Job, your sin has found you out. You got rich unjustly. You did it in a wrong way, in an ungodly way. So this is kind of an aha moment for Zophar and perhaps for his three friends as well, or his two friends. Now I see why you got all that wealth. It wasn't because you were being blessed because you had done something good. It was because you stole it, Job. You did something wrong. To get it. You neglected the poor. We're going to see that more next week. You you must have done something. Now it makes sense. You gained the wealth corruptly, Job. Admit it. See, Zophar believed that there's a direct correlation between how God viewed Job in heaven and how God treated Job on earth. Look at verse 27. The heavens will reveal His iniquity and the earth will rise up against Him. You can run for a while, Job. You can hide for a while. You may prosper in the short term, but but God will ultimately find you out. Because the parallel between what's going on in this earth is the same parallel that's going on in heaven. In other words, the way you're being treated in on earth is consistent with the way that God views you in heaven. Is that always true? Is that always true? So far, can't keep silent. And so he gives Job his final conclusion here. In fact, the very last word that that is recorded of Zophar speaking in this book, verse 29. This is the wicked man's portion from God, even the heritage decreed to him by God. Well, Job responds in chapter 21. And he doesn't respond directly to Zophar. He simply speaks about what he, he is feeling. He talks about the mystery of God's dealings with him in verses 1 through 1 through 6. And he tries to explain to these men that there is a category for both 
prospering wicked, that is, wicked people who prosper, and also innocent people who suffer. Verse 6, Even when I remember I am in distress and horror takes hold of my flesh. That is, when I remember the, the fact that I am suffering and that the wicked prosper, it terrifies me. Verses 7-26, through 26, Job says that the wicked seem to be free from judgment. Notice verse 13, they spend their days, the wicked, in prosperity and suddenly they go down to Sheol. You think that the wicked suffer immediate and lasting grief? He says to his friends. But if that's true, then why do the wicked suffer and they live long lives and then they die? They seemingly have a good existence. His point is, do the wicked ever suffer? Have you ever seen a wicked person... I'm sorry, do the wicked ever prosper? Have you ever seen a wicked person prosper? And they would have to say, yes. Of course, we, we know of some cases where wicked people, people who shake their fists at God, who worship false idols, we've seen them prosper. So, so Job's point is, if they do, then can't there also be a category for innocent suffering? You say that God takes out retribution on continuing generations, but but if that's so, verses 19 through 21, then why would the dead person even care? Verse 19. You say God stores away a man's iniquities for his sons. Let God repay him so that he may know it. Let his own eyes see his decay and let him drink of the wrath of the Almighty. For what does he care? That is the dead person. For his household after him when the number of his months is cut off. If God is going to punish future generations, then what does the dead person really care? Job says it's not that simple. There's not a one-for-one correspondence between how God views us in heaven and how we are treated on this earth. It doesn't always work that way. Now, that is generally the case in a very general sense. But the, 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 the righteous often suffer and the wicked often prosper. Turn back to chapter 19 because I want to show you Job's final hope. I skipped over verses 25 through 27, but I want to go back there now. Chapter 19, verse 25. What is it that Job would like to have written in stone so that they would keep and recognize? Verse 25, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, And at the last, He will take His stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. My heart faints within me. Job's hope and his faith is in his God, in his Redeemer, as he says in verse 25. This is the same word that's used of Boaz in the book of Ruth. That is, Boaz was Ruth's defender. That's what God is for Job. He he probably didn't know that, that God would become a man and that He would redeem the world by paying for sin with His life. But he did have a promise that God would defend him and that His Redeemer was just and that one day all the world including his three friends, would see that God is just and that what he had done to Job was a just act. Now, this doesn't mean that 
that Job has all of his questions answered. And even at the end of the book, we're going to see that Job doesn't get all of his questions answered. He simply has to leave some of the mystery. He still doesn't understand why there's suffering on this earth for righteous people. But he does here maintain his innocence and also continues his faith in God. That I believe one day God will defend me. It doesn't feel like He is right now. But He never stops acknowledging that God is just. What's interesting is that Job and his three friends never never make the claim that God is unjust. See, that's part of the problem of, of the three friends. They say God is just. Therefore, He has to punish sin. And for them, it had to be now. Job says, no, God is just. But He doesn't have to punish sin right now. An innocent person can actually suffer now and a a wicked person doesn't have to be judged in this lifetime. But he will be, ultimately. And so Job continues to allow God to follow through on his promise that Job would not give up on him as we saw in chapters 1 and 2. Satan thought he would give up by now, but Job has not. He has maintained his credibility He has maintained his faith in God. Let me offer you uh, four points of application this morning as a result of what we've seen. The continuing point that we see is that there's no hint of compassion with these three friends. There's no hint of compassion or honest grief. In fact, as the chapters progress, it seems like they're their uh, vileness against his apparent sin progresses. It seems that they ratchet up the judgment against Job, the condemnation. Instead of them seeing Job and being merciful on him and compassionate, they ratchet up the condemnation. And to their credit, they're trying to defend God. They don't want to see God as someone who is unjust. But in doing so, they've actually gone beyond what God has said and spoken where He has not. So when it comes to dealing with people who are suffering, I would say make sure that you are like Jesus, filled with compassion towards them. The very first thing out of your mouth should not be condemnation. I know why you are suffering. Or, sometimes we do it in a little more subtle way, why are you suffering? What have you done? Why have you come to this place? Because I know a lot of people, I know a lot of faithful people who don't suffer like you do. And so there must have been something in your past. When it comes to dealing with people who are suffering, the very first motive should be, yes, maintaining God's Greatness, His justice, yes, but but also come to them with compassion because God is a loving and compassionate God. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. And that's how we should treat those who are suffering. The second point that we see in these chapters is that Job's friends see a one-for-one correspondence between sin and suffering. If a person is suffering, they must have sinned. Their recurring theme is that God will judge all people, and that is true. 
but they see that His judgment actually begins on this earth. That He's punishing them now for their sin. And there will be some punishment as a result of our sin on this earth, but our final judgment is still future. Final judgment for all people is still future. They assumed that they knew the mind of God, but they had no category for innocent suffering. For them, if there was such a thing as innocent suffering, then it would demean God. I mean, it would say that God is being unjust, and that's what they were claiming Job was saying. Job, you're saying you're you're suffering, and you're saying that you're innocent, so therefore you're saying that God is unjust. But Job's saying, no, God can be just and I can suffer innocently. That those both can work together. I don't understand it, but it can happen. Of course, we know this from other examples in Scripture that that indeed is possible and it is probable for those who believe in Jesus Christ. Number three, Job and his three friends never question whether God is just. They never question God's justice. The reason that we have such a wrestling here in these 20 chapters or so between Job and his three friends is they're wrestling with this idea that God is just. And they look at the the nearness of their circumstances. All the things that are around them and it seems as if God is not just. See, Job is saying, I'm suffering for what what I have not done. And for them, they're thinking, how can that be possible? We should follow their example, by the way. Job and his three friends never question God's justice. God has made us spiritual beings to know the difference between right and wrong. And He's also revealed to us in His Word that He is just. And one day He will be seen to be just. It's as if He is, is making a beautiful piece of fabric and we are looking at the underside of that fabric and, and we look at all these uh Ugly, the ugliness of the underside of that fabric, we think, what could God possibly doing, be doing in all of this? God knows what He's doing. God sees what it looks like from His perspective. God knows what is right. And one day we will see that beautiful fabric that He has put together. And while we didn't understand it in this life, one day we will have a better understanding because we will see Jesus for who He is. The reason that it's so difficult to consider God's ways in this world is that the, that there is the delay between God's justice or before God's justice, and that often leaves us questioning His ways. We want sometimes want God to act enact His justice immediately. I mean, my wicked neighbors, my wicked boss, would you just punish them for what the sin that they're committing? And, and there are sinful people around us. But aren't you thankful that God has delayed His justice for the time so that you could have opportunity to respond to His Son? If God would have enacted injustice upon you immediately upon the time that you sin, you would not be here today. You would not have an opportunity to respond to Christ and yet God has delayed His justice for you. Don't you pray that God would delay His justice for others as well. 
Yes, we want to come to that time and we want we have this hope that that we desire to see Christ and and to see God's justice for what it is and to be removed from the groanings and the pains and the sufferings of this world. But at the same time, we also have a longing to see other people be able to respond to God's grace. So, so, so beg God to delay His justice as He did with you. And then fourthly, in the midst of trial, we can see that God uses those often for His good. That God uses trials for, for our good. Isn't it wonderful that God allows us to see how difficult a, how a difficult situation can be used for our good? Sometimes He shows us that. But that doesn't mean that God will give us an answer every time. Sometimes we can see the direct connection. Wow, that was a really difficult circumstance that I had to go through. But now that I look back on that, I can see exactly what God was doing. I can see that He was using that to strengthen my faith, to to change my view of Him, to to help give me an opportunity to to share the Gospel with someone else. But, But there are lots of times, there are loads of times when you will not get the answer even after looking back on it 20 years from the time that it happened. You look back at that difficult circumstance and say, well, God, I've waited long enough. Give me the answer. But He may never do it in this lifetime. And that means that we simply have to trust God. And that's the beauty of Job. It points us back to God. And it, it, it shows us a person who is genuinely wrestling with a real-life circumstance in the middle of a deep trial and wrestling, in a sense, with God and His purposes. And ultimately, at the end, what we're going to see is that Job responds by repenting of, uh, of the fact that he... He wanted a meeting with God. He wanted to be vindicated now. He says, God, You know all things. How can any of Your purposes be thwarted? Be encouraged, believer, because yes, we often suffer. And yes, only sometimes we understand. But we always have an opportunity to trust God in the midst of those things. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, if, if our, our circumstances were left to ourselves, we would certainly handle them differently than You do. And we thank You that we do not have ultimate control over our circumstances. That we are not our own God because we would certainly make a mess of our lives. Sometimes You've allowed us to see what that looks like. Take control of our, our lives and And You've allowed us to see that ultimately we need to be in Your hands to trust You. But other times, You show us that that we um, we don't always need to have the answers. We simply need to have You. And I pray for those who are suffering now that You would give them grace to be able to stand up in it even though they may not have the answers. We pray that You would just strengthen them, continue to to build their hope in You, continue to help them to understand and to see and to love You more. 
And I know there are some here who are going through significant trials. And so I pray that You would help help them during this time. And I pray for us. Those of us specifically who know those who are going through deep trials, perhaps in our family, perhaps here in our church, perhaps a close friend, I pray that You would help us to be compassionate, first of all that we would want desperately for them to see the truth of Your Word, yes, but to do so in a way that is compassionate and not to go beyond what, what Your Word has taught us. Many of what these friends have said to Job have, have been right, has been right statements. And yet they apply it to Job wrongly because they don't know that Job is suffering innocently. And the easiest thing for us to do is to be pious around people who are suffering and say, well, they're suffering because they've sinned. We are prospering because we are righteous. But that really does not take into account the mystery of Your ways. And so we pray for grace as we help to encourage those who are suffering We pray that You would help us to be ready to suffer when it's our time. We would learn now that You are not abandoning us. You're not turning Your back on us. You're not even punishing us. That You're causing us to be uh, strengthened by the fires of testing. Causing us to, to gain a better longing for the life to come. You're causing us to lean on Christ even more than we do now. Prepare us now, we pray, so that when that time comes, we will come forth as gold, tested by fire. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.